Angela. Hello, Jenny. So what are we here for today? We're going to talk about books. And remember, books are good, actually. Really? You're telling me? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So we read this week, or these past two weeks, The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. It's the sixth book in... Or is it the fifth book? Fifth book. Fifth book in the Haim cycle, I believe it's called. All right, so Dispossessed is a pretty interesting book. I mean, I found it interesting. I'm sure most of our readers are going to find it interesting. It's the story of a physicist from an anarchist planet. The planet is an offshoot of a capitalist planet, and they left the planet 170 years before the setting of our story. The story is told in a ping-ponging fashion between past and future, or past and present, and the past primarily takes place on the anarchist planet, and the present takes place on the capitalist planet. The story begins uh, with the physicist Shevek leaving the planet of his birth to go to this capitalist planet, Eros, and from there we watch as he, on the capitalist planet, is ensnared by the institutions and the easy life of a college physicist who is trying to work on uh, a theory of simultaneity, which is essentially what we would think of as a, a warp drive or an instantaneous space and time travel mechanism for either information or people and eventually, in this book series, as this is the fifth book, but it is the first book chronologically, results in the near-instant communication and travel between the rest of the human peoples that are spread across the galaxy. On the anarchist planet, we see Shevet grow up. We watch as he learns his place in society, or learns how to forge his place in society. The anarchist plan is called Anaris, if I'm remembering correctly. You yep. think I remember offhand to reading the whole book. And uh, society is structured there both in a way to maximize freedom of choice, as they're anarchists, but as Shevek goes through his past in this narrative, we see that there are still structures in place, there are still customs, there are still unofficial official rules that prevent both his work and his personal life from developing in the way that he would want. On the capitalist planet, Shevek eventually comes to see the walls of his prison for what they are, gilded as they are, and leaves the university after a drunken night at a party, first time trying alcohol. Didn't go well. From there we see him come into his purpose that he initially came to Arason, which was to spark another revolution, similar to the revolution that first brought his people to the planet, Anaris. Doesn't go well. Some people die. Some people do die. Yeah. The planet Aras is a bit of a, a metaphor, you could say, for 1970s, 1980s, the United States, maybe perhaps Great Britain. So after this failed revolution, or this failed initial spark, it may not have failed, we don't know. We don't really get to see that. He's eventually 
able to make it to a Terran embassy in this universe. Terrans are aliens to this planet, but are still what we would consider humans. And from there is able to provide the theory of simultaneity that the Erasti wanted from him to the universe rather than just providing it to them as they wanted. And that is pretty much the bones of the book. Do you have anything to add regarding... In terms of the summary? No, nothing to add. That pretty much covers it. So what did you think? How did you feel about it? So, initially, I am kind of indifferent to 1970s sci-fi. It's a lot of uh, allegorical, and I... It's fun, but sometimes after a plan, it's like, I want to not read this anymore. But, overall, I think towards the middle of the book, I kind of started getting more into it. The symbolism and, like, themes were pretty on the nose, which probably is okay. Sometimes there's been books, and I can't think of off the top of my head, that get a little bit too up their asses about, like, the symbolism, what they mean, so... The White Rabbit represents purity, but it also represents fertility, but then it also represents the desire to run. Right. It's, uh, so, uh, I really enjoyed the wall, like, motif. I thought that was pretty good. It especially comes up over and over again. Not, like, persistently, but you make, you can easily make the connections between what Shevek was feeling and the walls that he has, like, in his dreams or uh, when they come up. I think one of the difficult parts of this book is Parts where I start my eyes glaze over is when they're like, let's talk about the physics stuff, or like they're having these discussions. <laughs> just like, I, there's probably an importance to this, but I just don't see the connection here at it's, all. It's entirely a vehicle for the politics. Right. Right. And that's, sometimes I feel like I may have missed out on a little bit, but I still got, based on your summary, that's pretty much how I also got out of the book, too. Something I failed to mention in that summary, and you brought up there with the walls is that in the flashbacks that we're getting before he goes to Uras, Shevek ends up creating a like outside production group. Right. Uh, it's called a syndic. The purpose of which is for the printing of his theory, which is being suppressed by the supposedly free institutions of his planet. Right. So figured. There was also another thing I remembered, and it probably is interesting because they have a computer that tells them job postings. Right, Diff Lab. Yeah, Diff Lab. And I thought that was actually, she doesn't really go into the AI piece of it, but it's interesting that they have AI kind of controlling, as far as I'm aware, Diff Lab may be actually a group of people, but I thought it was a computer that just felt to the needs of the people and also chooses your name, which is like, I... Bit odd. Yeah, I... Yeah. I guess as, as a society, the names don't mean anything. It's about, I guess, community. They're also definitely trying to stay away from possessiveness. Yes. Which I can definitely see not getting to name your child and your child just being named something. Right. Would help to, I guess, divorce you from the notion that this is your child versus, say, this is a child that you gave birth to. Right. And on Div Lab as well, in the book, the, there's a, a bit of a romance arc right. where Shevek gets together with his wife, well, with Takver. Yeah. They don't really have wives in the sense of, like, 
that there is a binding marriage. You just choose to stay with someone or you don't. But they are constantly being torn apart due to DivLab either posting them specific places due to their expertise, or at one point there's a drought that leads to a famine right. that requires them to both go in opposite directions for years at a time. And that was something that was mentioned very briefly, at least from a narrative point of view, was the woman who lived next door to them and always wanted their house and was very profiteering yeah. regarding that. But she was under the pretense that DivLab purposefully would try and split up long-standing couples. Yeah. If given the chance, which could be true, may not be true. We don't know. Yeah, I think also there, maybe I misread it, but it seemed like an implication with Sable, his I guess his, like, his graduate mentor, uh, like, advisor or mm-hmm. something. Like, his, mm-hmm. not really his partner, because there was still, what was funny was that there was still a hierarchy in academia, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess you could actually take this book as kind of a critique of academia, mm-hmm. where there's still hierarchies, even though you come there to learn and to, like, publish these papers, they still may get censored. They still may get, pretty much show the results that they want to see instead mm-hmm. of having the science break out, like, to prove the theory, right? Sure. So I thought it kind of seemed like Sybil implied, like, oh, I have pull with this overarching academic, like, academia council, and you won't get a professional or a professor posting. Like, you won't be able to get college. I guess that's not through DivLab. I guess it's through some other syndic type thing. But I thought, like, oh, maybe he had pull with DivLab. Like, he knew someone there, and they were like, yeah, don't give him a job (laughs) at school. But... Maybe that's an implication that comes up in the other books. I don't know. So far as I understand, the other books don't really deal with Anaris or Aras. Okay. So, maybe? Yeah. Uh, obviously, this book doesn't touch on, like, going to the technologies more of the people, but it would probably would have taken away from the book if they did, but that's, I guess, an interesting exercise to think about. So, how did you feel about the book? I liked it a lot. Uh, as you mentioned, the sci-fi aspects of it outside of like, oh, there's two planets and we can travel between them. Outside of that, it was a little weak. Definitely was just like, yes, this this is physics. This is or this is talking about potential space physics yep. without actually going into any of the the nitty-gritty, so just anything goes really there. Uh, You can just say it works for the purpose of the story, which is fine, and thankfully it didn't dwell too much on that other than giving Shevek the the purpose for his various scenes. I really liked the juxtaposition between the chapters of how how he reacts with those around him. So, like, when he's on the anarchist planet, he's definitely very sure of himself on both planets, but he's more conciliatory, I feel like, more willing to argue a point versus... and Which makes sense, because so many of the people on his planet are already... Well, everybody's working with the same framework. Right. Whereas when he goes to the capitalist planet, we have a entirely different framework that he's existing in. So we have constant criticism from him, like, and not, not held back at all. In fact, it's all right if I read a passage that I'm sure jumped out at you. Sure, go ahead. It is 131 in my book, which is the Olive Edition. This is Shevek describing the shopping mall that he went to 
shortly after arriving on Uros. The whole experience had been so bewildering to him that he put it out of his mind as soon as possible, but he had dreams about it for months afterwards. Nightmares. Oh, gosh. Uh, space name, same Tenevia prospect, was two miles long, and it was a solid mass of people, traffic, and things. Things to buy, things for sale. Coats, dresses, gowns, robes, trousers, breeches, shirts, blouses, hats, shoes, stockings, scarves, shawls, vests, capes, umbrellas, clothes to wear while sleeping, while swimming, while playing games, while at an afternoon party, while at an evening party, while at a party in the country, while traveling, while at the theater, while riding horses, gardening, receiving guests, boating, dining, hunting, all different all in hundreds of different cuts, styles, colors, textures, materials. Perfumes, clocks, lamps, statues, cosmetics, candles, pictures, cameras, games, vases, sofas, kettles, puzzles, pillows, dolls, colanders, hassocks. What is a hassock? I have no idea. <laughs> Jewels, carpets, toothpicks, calendars, a baby's teething rattle of platinum with a handle of rock crystal, an electric machine to sharpen pencils, a wristwatch with diamond numerals, figurines and souvenirs and kickshaws and mementos and goo jaws. Goo gaws? Goo gaws. So, mementos and goo gaws and bric a brac. Everything either useless to begin with or ornamented so as to disguise its use. Acres of luxuries. Acres of excrement. Bring back to that point. Yeah, I like the fact that he went to the mall was horrified. I think he called it the nightmare, like the, I forgot what street he referred to as, like, later on when he was like, I went to this place, it's like, it was awful. <laughs> but yeah, that's, like, definitely very on the nose for how he views what this planet appears to be. Right. for most of his time on it, and definitely how I feel Ursula K. Le Guin probably views our planet right. in a number of ways. Pretty much literally shit. I enjoyed that there was a lot of shit. Poop talk. Just yeah. a lot. Especially when like he got on the spaceship initially, and there was like, there's a place you can take a shit? Like, what is that? Yeah. And it, it, not to say that the... Uh, anarchist planet doesn't have bathrooms. He's uh, amazed that he has his own place to shit, that nobody right. else gets to shit in. And it's not just utilitarian in use, like it's ornamental, even for being on what is essentially a freighter right. between planets. So immediately going off planet, he gets this like luxury shock Yeah, that exists for quite a while with him while he's uh, on Uras. But yeah, I, I really liked the philosophy that Shevek espoused and the organizational structure of Anaris. So we mentioned DivLab earlier. Right. On Anaris, as it's an anarchist planet, you have the right to do whatever you want within reason. Right. There are some limitations that are mentioned, like at one point, Shevik gets into a fight with someone and nobody stops him. Right. But at another point, it's mentioned that uh, one of the few things that is prevented or attempted to be prevented or punished is sexual assault against women or children. Though one thing I thought interesting about that is, like, just say sexual assault. Like, yeah. I'm sure there are non-binary people in the community. They may not be something that we were made aware of in the story, but Ursula K. Le Guin is definitely thinking about it, because Left Hand of Darkness is 
in the same cycle, and it's very much about being non-binary. And then also, just don't rape men. Yep. So you can do uh, essentially whatever you want in the society. If you don't like the posting that DivLab gave you, you don't have to do it. You can figure out something else you might want to do. You might just want to move down. Always the possibility of saying no. Right. But very few people do that. Yeah, it reminds me of the unlimited vacation that some jobs have. You can take as much time as you want, but in the society where, or I'm sorry, like in the microcosm of like your work, you don't want to be that person. So there's still a pressure on you to perform the job, even if you want to say no. I don't think that really gets too... We don't go too much into that in the book, really. But However, I think... Uh, I forgot which chapter it was, but when he was just sitting there at the Div Lab, and he was thinking, I don't want to be away from my wife and kid, and there's no postings that are nearby, and he's just sitting there trying to figure out what to do at that point. And that was a pretty, like, bleak part, because you you felt bad for Shevek, because he essentially was, like, this bullied nerd. Like, everyone was kind of like, you're, you're egoizing, which is used a lot. Uh, it, you know, I guess it can just be saying you're being selfish, is what it's really saying. And he got that a lot. His mother wasn't really around. His dad, the children all lived in, like, a dormitory, and his dad visited every once in a while. Uh... But he always had these, like, di- different thoughts from everybody else, and he just was always alone. And then finally, like, me talked to her, and, like, them having a relationship, kind of, for once, he's like, oh, I actually have to care about, like, something for once, uh, instead of work. And this is also after he got disillusioned with Savile. Like, after a point, he kind of realized, wow, this guy is not looking out for the best interests of the community. It's really his own ego, and putting Shavek down because Savile realized that Shavek was way more smarter than he is and way more competent. And he spells that out. He's like, you're way more competent to me. I need to stick. I want to stay here. I, I want to be at this posting because otherwise I do not want to do anything else. I'm a professor. I just want to stay here. And that was something that doesn't really get dug into, but that Savile has the structural position to not get reassigned by DivLab. Yeah. It goes into it a little bit, because uh, it talks about how Sable has sway with PDC, the right. Planetary Defense Corps, not sure on the sea, but they orchestrate communication between the two planets, because everybody on the anarchist planet, rightly enough, is pretty suspicious of the capitalist planet, so communication with the capitalist planet is... Uh, kept to a minimum and official purposes only, which on an anarchist planet, who is to say what is official? Right. And so we get to the structure that exists to perpetuate the rules of their society that isn't supposed to be there. And that's something that uh, Shevik definitely and others in the book struggle against. But it's not really investigated why Savile doesn't get posted somewhere else. It's just sort of indirectly... Uh, alluded to, maybe mentioned offhand once or twice, his his position of power. Yeah, I think what Ursula's trying to say also with this planet, too, is, like, it's also not perfect either. Like, obviously. It's, it's, there's still these, like, problems, like, Trebek is kind of being the reader stand-in to, like, going through these different, like, societies. 
and you're kind of like, okay, NRS, that's pretty recognizable. Like, NRS, like, it's, that's, that's a whole different thought process. However, there's still the human condition of just being an asshole that, <laughs> that, that's still there. Oh, right. And I just thought of this. At the beginning of the book, there's that fucking rock that gets thrown and kills someone. I thought I was going to come back up when they, at the end, landed. And I was like, okay, maybe that Hanish captain was going to get the rock thrown at him. But they never get that far. Maybe yeah. it's in the next book. Maybe someone gets killed by a rock at the beginning of the other book. It's a theme. It's a theme. Mm. I don't know. Still Ursula just, just wants to throw some rocks. <laughs> <laughs> throw some rocks punch people that kill people, which I'm just like, man, that guy should uh, be on a baseball team. He mm-hmm. can throw a rock that hard. There are a couple other, I mean, there are a bunch of passages that really resonated with me, but talking on the power structures again that exist on this otherwise anarchist planet, I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's across two or so pages, but towards the end of the book, I think it's chapter 11 or 12. Shevek ends up speaking with his friend Bedap, who at one point he has like a physical relationship with right. for a short period, but doesn't seem to be like sexual on either side. It's just like reinforcing their childhood bond, which is like, that's an interesting way to reinforce a childhood bond. Yeah. But they end up talking about their friend who wrote a play that nobody liked. Right. It sounds pretty funny as far as what would be a Shakespearean comedy right. made by an anarchist goes. But the purpose of, of talking about this is they're, they're finally getting to the point of there there exist power structures on this planet that shouldn't be there and we need to do something about it. So at one point, Tekver is listening to this conversation while trying to go to sleep, it seems like. Mm-hmm says, uh, well, what are you getting at? To which Shevek responds, we're ashamed to say we've refused a posting, that the social conscience completely dominates the individual conscience instead of striking a balance with it. We don't cooperate. We obey. We fear being outcast, being called lazy, dysfunctional, egoizing. We fear our neighbors' opinions more than we respect our own freedom of choice. You don't believe me, Tack, but try. Just try stepping over the line, just in imagination. See how you feel. You realize then what Tyrion is. Why he's a wreck, a lost soul. He is a criminal. We have created crime just as the proprietarians did. We force a man outside of the sphere of our approval and then condemn him for it. We've made laws, laws of conventional behavior, built walls around ourselves, and we can't see them because they're part of our thinking. Tyr never did that. I knew him since we were ten years old. He never did that. He never could build walls. He was a natural rebel. He was a natural Odonian. Uh, Odo is the, for our listeners, the woman who sparked the revolution on Arras initially. He was a free man, and for the rest of us, his brothers, drove him insane in punishment for his first free act. Yeah, I really like that passage, Dave. That was, uh, it really kind of hammered in that despite going to another planet and starting your own society, you still will fall into the traps regardless that there's no laws or anything like that. And it's something that actively has to be struggled against, which, as a society, the rest of them don't particularly care for that. Right. And so it sort of goes to point out that the development of freedom and choice is always a perpetual struggle. Right. And that any gains made are, are certainly something to be guarded and also to be celebrated, but not to be taken as a given. Right. 
Because I think towards the end of the book, when Shevik was, like, they were deciding to go to Uras, and that was unheard of. You do, they had, uh, they actually, it was funny, they had a law in place, or an agreement, but still, I mean, technically a law says you cannot go back there. That is, like, once you're here, we're going to do like, a little bit of communications with our scientific papers or any other type of communications, but that was it. No one goes back there. And his family, his daughter was starting to get bullied and saying that Shavek was a traitor. Mm-hmm. And or even trying to tra- communicate yeah, with even trying to communicate outside of right. and normal structure. So, what, you know, that it also showed him that he cannot, he has to consider, like, his family, too. Even though, like, Takwar was supportive, like, you should go. Like, you should be going there to spread this knowledge that you've wanted to do for, like, years at this point. And, you know, break down the walls of communication. So, yeah, there's there's still kind of the structure that's in place on Anaros. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Book club questions? All right, let's uh, take a break, and we'll go into book club questions. All right. So, let's continue on with some questions from the spoilers.blog, and they have some pretty great questions uh, that we decided to just roll right through. The first one, in a block of the first question, which is telling me, like, five, why might Le Guin have chosen Dispossessed as the title? Hmm, well, there's definitely a lot of talk of proprietarians. Right. To possess is to, to have, to control. Dispossessed. It feels like control, it's implied that control is removed from you. Right. Uh, which for a lot of the book, he, he definitely exists in a place where he is not in control of himself or his surroundings on Uras. And while on Anaris, you definitely feel like he has more control over what he does, what he studies, or where he works, but as as we discussed earlier, there's still a measure of lack of self-actualization and self-realization that is inherent to their society structure. So I would probably go with that for the reason why it's called the dispossessed. Okay. I think pretty much giving up the control or having the stuff or your possessions control you Mm-hmm. Then you controlling it, even though pretty much you shouldn't be having stuff. And I guess it's more of controlling yourself, mm-hmm. uh, having a to- like having extreme autonomy, right? Mm-hmm. That's but- a good point because uh, another way to look at possessed is from like a, a demonic possession or a ghostly possession, a possession by some external force, right? So the dispossessed, the re- the, the rejection of that, the antithesis of that. The full realization of your autonomy. Right. All right. Moving on. Where does she use the word words possessed and are dispossessed? I don't remember. Yeah. Neither do I. I think uh, towards. I think some of uh, Odo's writings, because uh, Odo is pretty much like the leader of Anaris, as we said earlier. And she had writings, and she mentions talking about coming to Anaris with empty hands, so you don't have possession of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you could also make the, as we said earlier, you have autonomy for yourself coming to this planet uh, with, like, nothing. But, yeah, don't super-duper remember. Anyway, moving on. We're talking about a lot of things about walls. So, uh, how do walls come to mean different things as different points at different points in the novel? So, earlier in the novel, Shavek has a dream as a child with a wall showing up, 
And I think people are digging under it or something like that. Like, some people are digging under, and he, I think, was afraid, like, obviously as a kid, kind of afraid of, like, there's this thing that's under this wall. Didn't really understand why, like, even occurred to him. This was also after his classmates learned about what a prison is. Mm-hmm. And that was an interesting that was, section. Yeah. And it kind of played off the kind of debunked uh, Stafford prison mm-hmm. thing where uh, it's it's not one-to-one to that, but it's like, oh, let's play prison. Let's It's just a bunch of walls, and you go in it, and we figure out we can control you. Mm-hmm. We can control what you eat. And actually, that's pretty much it. They didn't do, like, sleep def- deprivation thing, Christ. But, right. uh, like, oh, here's when you eat. That's 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 how much control we can give you. We're not going to also tell you when you're going to get out. That was the other thing. So, And to put it uh, slightly more in context of how it happens, this isn't, like, something that's organized by anyone in their school as children. This is just four boys essentially wandering off into a bit of the wilderness and they create this prison out of a, a small cave that uh, one boy decides to go into after they've had a discussion about uh, Erasti society and how prisons exist there. So it, it's not like this is really a controlled environment either. This right. is just something four boys decide to do. The one goes in voluntarily, and nobody really makes note of the fact that that this child is missing for a day and a half. Yeah, they're just like, oh, we just, you know, as long as we come back on time, no one's going to know, and then we'll just go back and pick him up later. But wasn't he there overnight? Yeah, he was there overnight. Yeah, like, how are you not going to miss that? Once again, another crack in this society. <laughs> no one knows where your children are. Hmm. So, back to this dream. He has a dream, and... It was, like, also after that and after he kind of got made fun of, of, like, kind of making this joke or, like, this discussion, and I was just like, shut up. Like, don't stop talking. Your thing is stupid. And he's just like, I don't understand why no one likes me. And that was kind of the wall of just, like, the wall of, I guess, like, his dormitory, like, life. Like, his little society at the children's dormitory. Because that's a whole different, like, microscope into, like, a small piece of the overall picture. Mm. And then later on, he has, like, a wall of when he starts writing his theorem, and that wall is pretty much his wall. So, Mm -hmm. like, he's the one who says, hey, you should not be writing this, and if you want this published, I'm going to have to take out pieces, and my name's going to be on there, too. And so there is that wall, and then for a while there was a wall, I guess, kind of around the decision... Actually, no, I don't think... I was going to say the decision was, like, Topfer and, like, figuring out where to go, but I don't think that was the case. Really? The wall of societal expectations. Yeah. Because the big reason why they're they're separated is the, the drought that is going on and seems to go on for a few years yes. in, the, in the story. There's, at various points, talks of groups of people starving and, like, large periods where you're you're eating half rations or third rations if you're sick. But yeah, there's definitely, we need to do this for the good of our society walls. Yeah. As far as what he gets to choose to do. Right. And then once he's on Uros, the walls of, uh, as you said, gilded walls of the glitz and glamour of like, oh, you know, they're acad- academics and like, you know, all these people and guy just being carted around the academic walls and like the city, like the only places that he could go to that he had to be escorted. Mm-hmm. And eventually he, you know, breaks out of that. And then also the wall with himself kind of with the, because he finally remembered what he came to Uros for and then 
that that was finally like broken down. How about you? On regarding the walls of Uras, and he he was both freer than he had ever been on Anaras, just because of how quickly he could travel, the different things that he could do on a whim. Right. They definitely enabled him to pursue his science as much as he wanted to. But like you were saying, he's escorted everywhere. He's allowed to go to state-sponsored or university-sponsored things. He can't really explore the underbelly of the society or really communicate with anyone who isn't buying into the, the structure as it exists on Uras. Walls... I feel like he covered most of the walls, if not all of the walls. Let me see if anything else comes to mind. Oh, regarding breaking down walls, mm-hmm. which I think is the next part of the question, basically. Right. Let's just go into that. Yeah, sure. At one point, Shevek tells Talker that he's going to unbuild walls. Why does the wind have Shevek employ the unusual verb unbuild instead of more common words like tear down, uh, such as, you know, Mr. Orbovich, tear down that wall. I like the fact, uh, one, I really like this question because it, it puts in focus something that I didn't pick up on mm-hmm. when I read it, but the choice of unbuild versus tear or break or destroy or knock down, I feel like implies a careful consideration. Yes. And a, a desire to see whatever is left of the structures still be standing or still be useful. I also think that it's very non-violent. Because mm-hmm. I tear down or destroy is very violent imagery compared to unbuild where, let me put this, I guess violence would be like do unto you. Mm-hmm. And unbuild is, as you say, like a conscious decision. Like I'm going to unbuild this thing that I've built up or was built up around me and I'm going to do it piece by piece instead of like let's just tear through stuff and Mm -hmm. that's just how it is you can't usually with like tear down you can't reuse pieces or anything like that everything's Mm -hmm. pretty much destroyed or unusable I believe that phrase is used near the end of the book where they're coming into conflict with the PDC and his mother Yes. Who is only in the book twice, initially as the doctor for Shevek when he's getting over a bout of pneumonia that left him delirious, and he rejects her there. Right. Because she was not a part of his childhood. And then at the end of the book, she's a part of the PDC, like, council, and is very aggressively against his decisions to publish things that others don't want published, or communicate with off-world capitalists regarding the things that he has published. So that wall, the unbuilding is definitely, like, made very clear there. And, like, there's a lot of resistance to these actions and these choices. And so the, I guess, the nature of unbuilding, because if you were to unbuild a structure, it's not going to necessarily resist you the way unbuilding a societal structure would like if you want to take a room apart you cut off the drywall in manageable chunks and you pull out the nails and take the beams down people aren't necessarily going to be as simple to take apart or societal cultural structures aren't as simple to take apart so you really see the both the careful and the slow way that that unbuilding is happening at least as far as on the planet now at the same time right like they're definitely moving very quickly 
because mm-hmm. it's over the course of like a couple months, months they publish yeah. this book and then they're in communication with the capitalist planet and then Shavek is off. Yep. Also answer this question is kind of if you think about Miguel like a culty, mm-hmm. but you know, the cult is to see what's to see like a kinda of like what's not there. Mm-hmm. So in a way he's kind of being a wizard. In a weird, like, in a kind of a way, within, like, the confines, but he's being kind of like, yeah, I meet this thing that no one has really ever thought of, or, like, maybe dreamed of, and then I'm gonna just give it to everybody, because that's what I should do, and regardless of how you feel, how you feel about stuff. So, he's kind of just like, to me, like, when he's like, hey, I'm making this interstellar thing, I thought, oh, he's making the internet, in a way. Being able to instantaneously transfer information and someone else people read it right then and there instead of a couple months or years down the line when they actually travel to their place it's it's very radical technology for yeah. sure and it beyond what the uh, anari think is going to happen when he is like shortwave communicating with capitalists like this is going to blow open the structure of all societies like not just theirs because if, if you can communicate with anyone anywhere in the universe instantaneously right you're not going to be able to the implication was also that this might allow for instantaneous travel as well right you're not going to be able to stop people from leaving or coming yeah and i realized this after this is like 1974 so i think darpa was 1981 or two Mm -hmm. so in a way this is like like Mm pre-internet and uh, yeah, it kind of, like, once the internet came, it's kind of like, oh, we can actually instantaneous communication, and also weapons, right? That that kind of was the other thought of, like, oh, we can actually, instead of using satellites, we can use things from underground and do things from further away to inflict harm. But that's another thing. Uh, so let's move on. One other point regarding that, that occult point. And so uh, I'm going to bring up Posadism real quick uh, okay. for anyone who isn't familiar. Posadism is a communist LARP where they believe that to get outside of history to enable a communist utopia, we're going to need aliens. And to summon the aliens, we need to nuke the planet to open up our psychic capabilities to communicate with dolphins to summon the aliens. Uh, right, yes. So I see the thing you. is, is that... Uh, reason why we had we saw quote unquote more UFO sightings. If you're a skeptic, whatever, sure. because we were the ones. I'm sorry, United States were the ones to have the nuclear technology to nuke someone, and thus, as we like that happened, we opened our like minds to like, oh well, UFOs will be like, ah, United States, they're the one with like this powerful weapon. Mm-hmm. We should keep our eye on them. Mm-hmm. So. Everyone starts paying more attention to the skies while we're also flying around more. But so with uh, Shivek's technology, this technology that would allow for both instant communication and potentially instant travel to anywhere in the universe, that breaks down the sort of the material requirements of any particular society like you don't you're not dependent on the food that your world can grow you're not dependent on the your world itself for uh, having a habitable climate and, and that's something that that we we've mentioned earlier was that 
at one point, Anaris is going through a, a couple-year drought where food is scarce, everyone is stretched to their their limit regarding um, both their position in society, the work that they're doing, right. and just the food that they're able to eat. And with this technology, that hypothetically goes away. There is no more material barrier to... You could say there's a finite number of planets, but there's, so far as we know, there's an infinite number of planets. Right. Space is always expanding, and it's so insanely huge that no one can really, like, wrap their head around just how many there are if there's even an countable number. Right. So, assuming that everyone exists in these worlds, in this book, exists in a universe like that, where space is infinitely expanding, there's potentially an infinite number of planets, there is no more barrier to what you can do. Right. At least as far as your material conditions are concerned. So, in that way, he is, by introducing this technology... Uh, and making this technology available to everyone, he is like a force outside of history and potentially bringing forth the the next step in Odo's vision, which is a society where you bring nothing and just give yourself. Right. The, the material no longer matters because the material is... There's no preciousness left. Mm. There's no scarcity left. Right. So there's pretty much no luxury that to strive to anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So. Check out Posadism. <laughs> All right. We're going to turn to contemporary political things of how it's impossible to think about the wall in the novel without thinking about the Ameri Make America Great Again movement and its isolationist and nativist philosophy. What might the novel tell us about the living in the age of Trump? Tells me that I'd rather deal with an eight-year drought on an anarchist planet than this. Even with the scarcity uh, that they experience, it still feels like an, a more equitable and free society. Even with the, re the restrictions and societal structures that exist there, it's... Pretty much, time moves on and everything stays the same. That's, mm -hmm. that's pretty much mm -hmm. uh, what I got. Whatever structures were already set up are still going to pretty much be here until people, other people wake up to tearing down those structures. And we got to help them unbuild. Yeah, that's for sure. Okay. So the other question is more to the languages that are in the book, which are Iotic and Probic. And so how do these languages shape the consciousness of the speakers? In particular, we should consider the evolving consciousness of Shavek, who is the only person who speaks both uh, languages. Um, I believe Iotic is the Eros language, and Pravic is the uh, Anaris. Which, if you think about it, which is interesting, um, they came there like 170 years ago. And they assume a speed Iotic, but it seems to digress? Or, I'm sorry, maybe not digress, that's probably not the word. But it, it moves to more of a non-possessiveness type mm -hmm. of language. Mm -hmm. Which, reading the book, I super didn't notice. I kind of just... Kind of was like, yeah, and told the Gwen, pointed out mm -hmm. of, oh, they, he spoke in the non possessive thing of yours or something of that nature. Mm -hmm. So. And that is something that was more so the focus of the Aras chapters. Right. Because he's on an Aras, like he talks about Eotic, Iotic, who knows. But it's mostly in, like, sort of disbelief at the ridiculousness of some of it. Yeah. But it, in. 
progress. Like you're, you're constantly confronted by the different ways in which they talk about people and possessions and ideas. And yeah. And then towards the pretty much the last, like second to last chapter, when Shavek goes to the ambassador, the ambassador mentions, ah, like when Shavek speaks, he incorporates both into which she says, oh, you actually invented human speech. So what is the ramification of the invention of communication of human speech, particularly if it reflects Shavek's idiosyncratic consciousness? I'm amazed I did that word pretty well. One thing I, I do want to speak to uh, before we get to that regarding Ionic is that what what he brings up when he's on Anaris is how steeped in religion it is. Like right. he, he's he's pointing out like there's no cursing on Anaris. Yeah. Uh, really, like the closest it, it really comes is like references to the waste management. Yeah, like yeah, excrement. Yeah, it's yeah. always like. This is like shit, and that that yeah. is considered like oh yeah, it's a bad thing. So mm-hmm. shit, <laughs> especially uh, as we haven't mentioned yet. Le Guin definitely spends a, a decent amount of time talking about human sexuality on Anaris and how it's not really fuck is not really a bad word right. because of the the context of the the planet. It's just free copulation with anyone who is is down for it. So when he's learning Eotic, and what's interesting is he still picks up on all of this religious like ideology yeah. in learning Eotic out of physics manuals. Yeah. So, like, what did they write about? Like, how are they writing? Um, yeah, it kind of reminds me of, like... The like fourteen hundred, you know, physic like a lot of the science was still heavily like coupled with God, and like God made this the sun, and that's why it rotates like, and thus they made the celestial stars, and they rotate in a certain way. And yeah, maybe because we never, I don't think they've ever really, we never got a chance to really read or look at these like texts, so maybe they are mentioning celestial bodies that someone made mm-hmm. and that's why it's a lot of religious you know iconography or whatever the hell that word is like in the textbooks mm-hmm. definitely could be though i would think that with how how like advanced or Rossi technology is and physics like you would think that and also while on the planet there's Almost no mention of religion. Right. So, like, the language is, at least as far as the cursing is concerned, and the moral structures seem to be concerned, they are religiously organized, but none of this is, like, we don't see a church, he doesn't mention a church, never hear a church bells, he talks about birds Birds. chirping a lot, but there is no religion on Aras, despite their language being steeped in the iconography. Mm, that's that's almost like a you know, we have like a lore question, you mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. what's the lore of why do they think hell and damn are bad words? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Could it be from their history? You know, millennia ago they had a religion and then they crumbled as their society moved on, but they still keep those words as bad. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's. Hmm. Could be something we also miss while reading. That's mm-hmm. <laughs> and they do, like, they, other than excrement, uh, the Inari definitely do have, like, bad words, but they're egoizer and yeah. proprietarian yeah. and uh, capitalist. 
Yeah. Uh, I think even traitor is kind of a bad word. Yeah. Because uh, his daughter, like, was, like, stumbling over the word traitor, like, mm-hmm. as his parents telling someone their dad's a fuckface or something. Yeah. So, yeah, it definitely points at the, the, the parts of both societies that are, like, unspoken, except to be used as bad words, which is on a Ross, you don't make a lot of money or you're doing something to stop somebody else making money, you're going to hell. Damn. Uh, you're damned. But if you're on a Naris, you better not be thinking primarily about yourself over everybody else. Otherwise, you're a dirty egoizer. Yeah. So I think the next question, talking about uh, the ambassador saying, oh, you invented a human speech. We can talk, at least we can talk together. And I was thinking about this, and I don't think throughout the book they, until this point, said we at all. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's usually you or you, yours, never they, mm-hmm. really. They always say eras or eras, C-D-E-R. It's always proper. Always proper now. But... They never say we can all talk together, and I think the ramification of, like, the speech is that they can finally communicate without otherizing each other. Uh, essentially, like, pretty much saying, okay, we can work together, not a fr- have a friction against each other. Mm. And... Another barrier. Another barrier is dropped, yes. Potentially the final barrier. Yeah, because language is very much a very huge, like, important piece. Like, if we're not able to communicate in a weird way, we're kind of like, we can't talk the same language, thus we are enemies, which is mm-hmm. uh, reasons. Well, that, I feel like that goes back to, like, a human evolution, right. which is, like, at base level, we're conscious animals. Animals are, and this is obviously... Not my area of expertise and a super vague, like, overview. If you're not part of the, the group, you're combating for resources, potentially. So by introducing communication at, at that level, it really sort of strips that away. Because yeah. you, you can be like, well, also, potentially instant travel. No more real competition for resources. or There's no limitations to what you can't have. Yeah. So, just completely drops that, like, separation barrier of, we don't have much, and we don't know your language, so stay away because we don't want you taking ours. Yeah. I also want to mention, I just thought of this, that it seems like the only time you will encounter the Yodic language is if you're a physicist, Mm. where obviously most people in this other society are not. Most people will kind of uh, they even mention, you know, there's like artists or, uh, yeah, artists or musicians who can't make music for themselves, but to make it music that's popable to everybody else, which is asinine. And, um, so the, that's the only time you encounter it. If you're in a specific field, you're in academia, you're in a specific field in academia, that's when you actually encounter these texts. Otherwise, you just kind of go on with your life speaking this, you know, product. That's that's it. There's no other languages. It's kind of like, like here, never learning Spanish or French. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that would be kind of insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, granted, that was, you know, probably... His invention is, uh, I'd say, or his theory and the results of it are like, you could compare it to somebody in uh, the, the Wild West 
learning learning French via right. postcards. Yeah. And then being like, okay, now that I've communicated with the French, I've got these ideas. We now have the internet. Everyone can have Duolingo. Yeah. Let's all learn Russian. Yeah. All right. We'll move on to the next questions. Sure. All right. So this is all about gender, family, sex, and sexuality. Uh, a common trope of utopian and dystopian literature is that reimagining of fam- familial structures. So in 1984, we have sex as anathema, and as a consequence, romantic families do not threaten the power of the state. In Huxley's Brave New World, promiscuous sex is encouraged, and sex is entirely separated from procreation, thus preventing families from undermining the state. How do partnerships, marriages, sexual relationships, and familial ties on Anaris and Eros affirm or undermine social institutions and social cohesion? So, I think with Anaris, it seems kind of like marriage isn't a legal thing. It's just something you kind of you in a you kind of just become monogamous with someone. You have children. The children can either stay at the dormitory. Stay with you. Then that's frowned upon after. Yeah, after a point. It's kind of like, you're, okay, your kid's not a baby anymore. They should go to the children's dormitory. Uh, if they stay with you, that's kind of like, what's, you're being, they're being selfish. Ego-wise. Being proprietary. Yeah. And then, Shavek actually had a, I want to say, as you said, not really a relationship with uh, Badap. Mm-hmm. He, it was just a physical thing to kind of reestablish their, like, friendship. Which is interesting, because I've, can't remember a book or other things off the top of my head, but, like, that is kind of a, a trope, I feel like. For instance, in Huckleberry, not Huckleberry, but Tom Sawyer, where, like, Huckleberry comes back, and they obviously don't have fucking sex, but it's just kind of, like, the weird, like, like, Let's like, bang on this raft. But, like, the... Okay, Tom. They're like, oh, right, we're reestablished, like, brothers again. It's, like, this in a different way of, like, okay, they're adults. This is how adults here, like, reestablish their relationships is, like, a very intimate thing. And granted, sex isn't, like, it's intimate, but it's not sacred. Mm-hmm. It's a very kind of, like, hey, we like each other. Let's do this. And it seems like pregnancy and, like, children is kind of like, okay, yeah, that's fine. Like, not a fear. Mm-hmm. Neither it seems like STDs are a fear. Mm-hmm. That never comes up, so I don't know. Yeah. I think uh, on the, the fear of children, a lot of that has to do with the way society is structured. Because there's no... Since you, you aren't getting legally bound, and there's not really any property, there's... Nothing to pass down. Your your children are going to be taken care of right. in a dormitory, regardless of what happens to you. Right. You don't, as we saw with Bidab, not Bidab, uh, Shevek's mother, Rulag, she disappears out of his life, yeah. and that is, that is fully normal. Yeah, and um, it's not, like, it's not even a ding against her. They're like, yeah, she's gone, and he's just like, that's just a stranger, at this point a stranger, or someone I know in the society. It mm-hmm. doesn't really affect him, which kind of reminds me of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, where, oh, like, Jotaro's, like, dad, or, yeah, his dad, kind of out of the picture, never is brought up, never has some failing of him, like, Ock needs to get over his dad problems. It's like, yeah, he's gone. And before I take totally say the wrong Jonathan, and like, no, no, I actually did say the right Jonathan, and like, Josuke, his dad does come back, and then he's like, oh, that's my old dad, okay, and then like, it's never like, oh, we need to go deep in on the psychological problem, it's just like, yeah, my dad's gone, now he's back to go and help me fight a uh, serial killer, and uh, we just go on from there, like, it never is really, like, brought up, except for like, wow, his mom is like, really young with this old guy, but that's, you know, whatever. Sure, that's odd. But since they're 
there aren't like property relations and like legal institutions to back those property relations up, there's no real reason for people to be like, uh, you you should pick a single person and have kids with them. And right. it's just not necessary in their society. Not even saying that it's necessary in our society, but it is the way that we have structured it, or it has been structured for us. Right. I think on Uros, it seemed like... It, I'm trying to... Because he has, like, a dinner with the family... Mm-hmm. And the mom kind of stays quiet throughout, and she sometimes participates in the conversation, and then there's, like, children. They don't really go into how Ross is really structured. I don't honestly recall. I think it was very... He has a discussion with... So that was Pei. Pei, right. His wife and his wife's sister, Via. Shevek has a conversation with her at one point before her party, which sparks his realization that he's being duped. Not necessarily like her party itself, but like that is the culmination of him existing in the decadence of their society and then breaking through that. But for their party, they have a conversation about women's place in society. Right. And she posits that women control the men when he's like, but you don't, you don't make decisions in the public sphere. You don't work. You don't teach. You can't go to school. Like, how do you exert power? And her answer is basically like, sex. Yeah, and also the thing with power in their context is being superior over someone else. Mm-hmm. So since uh, most men there in that society were superior to the women, the women had to find different ways to be quote-unquote superior to the men, mm-hmm. uh, which is through to them or her sex mm-hmm. and honestly it's until you get to the like two or three pages about the revolutionary like you don't really see other like women characters mm-hmm. in Uros on like t- like talk for in Honoros mm-hmm. so who is someone who is a direct partner with Shevek makes decisions right Shevek pushes him in directions sometimes that he doesn't necessarily want to go or might be like, not that he doesn't want to go, but he is ambiguous about how committed he is at times. And she is the, helps him to make these decisions rather than just being someone that is, has her life decided. Yeah. For him, by him. And like, she also kind of a, like, kind of agrees with his, like, okay, if you think about it, like, stepping out of line, mm-hmm. how is that? Instead of just being like, oh, I can't do that. Like, she's like, okay, yeah, let's go through this. And because she also witnessed what happens when you, like, stepping out mm-hmm. with, like, tyranny and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, as far as we're aware, pretty much people are equal partner to their partner. Not necessarily a spouse, but... Compared to these other books, which I have honestly not read, it seems like... On Uros, familiar, like, relationships are very, still, like, pretty uh, similar to the 60s and 70s, like, relationships. But on Uros is kind of, you have a choice to stay or leave. However, there may be some conspiracy in which Divlab splits up couples. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But that doesn't really go, you don't go much into that. So there may or may not be, it may just be a red herring. I'd argue that on on Uras, the male-female power dynamics are, are more similar to, say, like, turn of the century. Because we mostly see, like, two... Well, we mostly, uh, of all the women that we encounter on Uras, the two that get the most about them, one is a physicist's wife, 
and she exists as as a house runner. Yeah. And seems to be respected in that manner, but her husband still fully gets to make decisions that can overrule hers, and she has no say outside of the house. Her sister definitely seems to be richer. Right. Um, her husband is out of the country constantly on, like, diplomatic missions or, or government work or something. He's not introduced, and his absence isn't really explained clearly. Yeah. But So she definitely has the, the same, like, house-running power, but because she also has access to more wealth, she gets to exist in, in a way that wealthy women at the turn of the century could, whereas most other women, if they weren't, like, in a house being a, a house runner they were probably working in factories yeah and bringing up an excellent podcast uh the dollops episode of alice roosevelt Mm -hmm. teddy roosevelt's first daughter hearing about the things that she got up to i imagine via would definitely have the same level of freedom maybe less like she gets driven around she's not stealing cars and driving them around herself she throws parties she's not going to the dog tracks and the horse tracks to, to bet all day. Um, so there, which Alice Roosevelt's behavior at the time was incredibly, like, out of the norm. So Vio's behavior as a, an extremely rich woman with no male figure in her life to control her probably would match up with the rich of the turn of the 1900s. Yeah, she pretty much is in the capitalist society that she's in. That is kind of what she fits into. She throws these parties, she fights the really, you know, the rich and powerful, and because her husband's rich and powerful, and then she needs to keep kind of keep up the, like, facade of, you know, oh, he's doing important things, but, like, I'm still going to try to make these relationships that will probably benefit my husband mm-hmm. all at the same time. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on. The Ododian, Odonians use brother and sister to refer to each other, thus creating a fictionalized family, while at the same time the elimination of the personal pronoun in uh, connection to biologically biological family members, so my mother, for example. Along with the removal of family names or naming undercuts the traditional notion of family bonds, how is it then that family bonds like the bond Shavik feels for Sedek survive, and then to what extent has society on Neris failed to escape old familiar structures? I definitely feel like we covered this a bit earlier. Yeah. With the, the naming in Div Lab. Just to, to recap, though, they don't have familial naming structures. You don't get to name your kid, and definitely feels like, in my mind, that's maybe a bit too far. Yeah. It's a bit too anti-propertarian. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I understand this is probably was not even the point, right? Of mm-hmm. making your own family, your blood is in your blood, mm-hmm. you know, blood thick in the water kind of, I guess we're trying to say like in a way like that doesn't really matter. So that's saying, uh, that's the oh. short version. The long version is the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Huh. Mm-hmm. Fair. Okay. So the people you choose should be more important than just whomever you're born yeah. to. But I think when Shavek was finally deciding to go to Uros and then uh, Siddiq was starting to get bullied, they still knew who she, like her parents were. Like that that's not a secret. Yeah. Like people will figure out who you're associated with and just like be like, oh, that's okay, that's your dad who's being an asshole. You're probably an asshole, too. And that probably also has to do with the size of their society. Yes. If we had a society structured in the way that they have a society structured, but with the number of people that we have, that probably 
wouldn't occur in the same way. Yeah. It's still pretty much a small town. Yeah. And you always have your small, you always have that one family. You're like, they've always been an issue. You are always still, like, I think uh, just because there's a random name, you don't name them. They're still your kid or you're still part of your family. And I will always probably be a thing because that's a very easy identifier that mm-hmm. regardless of no last names or names at all. Okay, moving on. Shevik, as Odonian, has been indoctrinated for his whole life into respecting the personhood of others. What factors then lead to a sexual assault, of, assault on Via? How does Shevik's behavior prior to the assault establish as a failure to recognize Via as a he- full human? And why does Le Guin include the sexual assault in a novel and then not return to it after the fact? That is very interesting that she does not return to it. He's like, this person's drunk and he wakes up and he's like, I have an epiphany. It's like, what? <laughs> that was a really interesting chapter mm-hmm. the entire time mm-hmm. surface level he got super drunk and thus he got His horny and then he too. was like yeah this woman's really hot because or not hot sorry it's a okay yeah actually a yeah. hot lady and he was like who's, man it's been a while bare breasted who's bare breasted yeah which that is, is their dress in the home apparently yeah which is definitely very like I guess objectification a little yes. bit yeah but I think maybe it's because he's been on the planet so long and he's used to kind of seeing women as these objects that he's seeing, like, he's seeing other people treat these women as kind of, like, just there, right? Well, he's, he's really only interactive with, like, two women. Right. Most of his time, like, he's not interacting with women on the planet. Right. When he does, they are definitely treated more like property than men are. So that, that definitely plays a part in it. But right. it's not like he's constantly seeing women being treated as properly, but property. But that's just because there are no women around him. He's just con- constantly surrounded by men at the university. Right. Sorry. No, it's fine. Um, I would I would say that that part of it he as far as like the fact that she doesn't return, Le Guin doesn't return to it. Shavik doesn't really think about it. Yeah. Beyond just it, it is sort of mentioned in, in the the first, like, page or so of the next Eros chapter, like, the shame that he feels. But given that sexual interaction between people on Anaris is as free as it is, right? and the way in which Vea has been an Erasti grown to uh, and uses her sexuality as a tool for power mm-hmm. and to get the things that she wants or just for the, the fun of doing whatever she wants to do with the power that she has. I definitely feel like there is a, a mismatch of views and intentions. So, like, she's coming at it as, I have this power, this is my tool, this is what I use, this is what I wield. And he's coming at it as, like, you seem interesting. Yeah. Hey, let's do this. And she's like, mm, this is my tool. I get to say how and why I use this, which... Totally true. But at the same time, the structure of their society where she's bare-breasted, she's flirting with him constantly, not saying she's leading him on, but with the mismatch of their cultures, it could be that to him she is implying or, like, suggesting things that she isn't in Erasti culture. Right. So that might be why Le Guin doesn't return to it, because Shevik doesn't return to it, because sex to him isn't something to be ashamed of. Like, she is, she definitely, when he comes on her dress, is distraught by this, because I'm going to have to change. 
they're going to know. Yeah. Like, we could have arranged something. So, like, she definitely, like, seemed like she either so wanted she's to... she's been in the situation before. Yes. And she's just kind of like, look, I this cannot be nearly as blatant yeah. as this. We could have arranged something. Like, I'm wasn't, I'm not not interested. Yeah. But this is not the time or the place. Yeah. Like, this is not how I would do things. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because she was pretty dismissive. Like, when they picked him up, he's like, she's like, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. get him out of here. He ruined kind of my party. Mm-hmm. I want him gone. Yeah. And yeah, as you said, Shavek was like, oh, I messed up. Mm-hmm. And just didn't really revisit mm-hmm. and kind of moved on. I don't know if that's, for most folks, that would be kind of a, like a good wrap-up. It's like it kind of wrapped up because she, uh, Vea was like, I'm done with this person. I do not need to see them anymore. Mm-hmm. Any interest is kind of, th- that door's closed. We're yeah. done. And she's obviously not interested in a revolution or anything. She's no. just doing her, having fun. And he was interested in Shevik because of his novelty. Yeah, because he is definitely an alien, and she's like, oh, okay, like, like I'll fuck that, so. Mm-hmm. But, like, in my own terms, and how right. I want to do it. Right. You can't just roll up in here, and we're, no, that's not yeah. how it works. Yeah, there's definitely mismatch in courting rituals, essentially. Yeah. But, yeah, why, why he doesn't return to it is because it's outside of the getting drunk and kind of making a fool of himself that way, it's not a big deal. Yeah, actually, I, I, I'm kind of wondering, like, so I guess on Anaris, alcohol isn't really a thing? Doesn't exist. So, but why? <laughs> um, well, so... They're I guess they can't grow the, the crops to do it. Maybe they're... That would definitely be one. I think part of it is also the ethos of the planet, because they definitely seem like clear-minded people or, like have the attempt to be, and then in conjunction with that, that it's not like on Uras where things are so incredibly plentiful even after centuries, millennia of development and wars and material creation and extraction, which they do touch on ever so slightly that certain mines on Uras are tapped out and there's yeah. no more of that material and so they have to go to Anaris to get this material and that's how the communication between the two planets was first facilitated. On Anaris, they don't have the resources to really waste on alcohol. So there isn't, like, you could say that alcohol is a frivolous bonus thing. That while we definitely needed, as we developed as a, a species because of the way in which it made safe water, yeah. essentially. Right. And we didn't have germ theory. Fair. Because they they're pretty much just coming from a different colony, going over somewhere else. They yeah. have some of the technology. They're probably, yeah. we're like, they have, they have spacefaring technology. Yeah. They can get... Like fifteen, twenty thousand people onto another planet. Yeah, I'm just saying. Why didn't they bring some booze? Some booze. Just make it more fun. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> fun-ish. Anyway, they have plenty of fun working. Yeah, fun working in the dust field where you yeah. get dust cough that yeah. they couldn't cure, which I thought was interesting. Like you, they're like, he's like, oh, I got cured for my cough. That's cool. I'm like, so they don't know how to they. There are always still limitations. Fair. All right, moving on to how tolerant are the Anarasetti of queer culture? Does Badak, the only character who is explicitly identified as a pretty definitely homosexual, enjoy the same treatment as other characters? What does the intercourse between Badak and Shebek reveal about the function of sex in an Anasratti society? 
In terms of queer sexuality in the book, it seems like they're still kind of basing the function of sex as procreation. They definitely have fun with it, too. Yeah. They, they talk about people having fun with it, but it... But, like, it, it pretty much, through your 20s, you have your fun, and then you're supposed to settle down, which is still a very kind of, like, religious type of thing. You, you have the option of, yeah. of having children, but, like, frivolous sex sort of stops being a thing. Right. At least so far as we are shown. Yeah. I guess it's... It's still kind of like, Badap is still, like, within the, like, Shabak and, like, Topper. Like, he still comes over, he still is kind of a family friend, and, but you don't get the sense that they're in the same relationship as Shabak and Topper at this point. Mm-hmm. You probably, oh, he's, like, the uncle, right? Mm-hmm. But then I thought it was kind of shitty when he's like, oh, I had all this sex and blah, blah, but I don't have the same relationship that Topper and Shabak has. And I'm like, that's kind of... Mm. Like, a little too, like, eh, kind of queerphobic, like, a bit. Like, it's yeah. still kind of like, oh, the grand scheme of things, the dude's supposed to, like, have children. Mm. And maybe maybe I read that wrong, but I feel like kind of kind of undermines the... I, I would say it, I didn't take that as queerphobic. I took that as more, with as small as a society as they have, it's certainly more likely for people in it to be heteronormative and cis. Okay. So the likelihood of finding a partner that you want to stay with, especially with how people are moved around all the time, and without the binding of a child, it's probably harder to keep those partnerships going. Don't think it's impossible. Other than Badab, we we aren't really shown any homosexual relationships. No. Or non-heteronormative relationships. So, could be that, that there are, I certainly don't think there's anything inherent in their society that would push against that. At least, like, maybe as you were saying, like, the have kids. But there isn't really like that, like, have kids. It's just like, well, you had a kid. Yeah, it's, they definitely don't say, like, in order for us to continue as a society, you need to have children so we can keep going or whatever. It's kind of like, okay, you had a kid, cool. You need to send them to this dormitory after a point. Yeah. Oh, then, oh, this is their name, by the yeah, way. this is their name. <laughs> yeah. Her name is, uh, you know, Shovel, and they need to go to the dormitory, and, you know, we're good to we're good to go. But I guess, yeah, I mean, it's not queerphobic, but, like, Badap kind of still thinks, like, oh, I don't have a child. And I'm just kind of like, there has to be something there to be kind of like, oh, I'm not, like, I'm wasting my life. I don't have a kid. Mm-hmm. However, it's weird to me to be thinking that when you you are part of a family unit in a way, right? You he says they mention like, oh, they write, he loves like the little the smaller kid. He's really into like playing with her, like that, like that's a cool thing. But I guess because it's not his kid, mm. he's like regretting. But it's very proprietarian of him. There, I want to have a child. I think treatment is. Fine, but the text I'm a little leery on. That I think that's it's kind of they have sex, but the text says like I want to have a kid. I don't know. That's a very interesting thing. I guess I don't have a thing of adoption. Sure. Well, there isn't a need to. There, I guess there is a need to. Yeah. yeah. Since yeah, so like it is something that he is uh, unless he wants to like purposefully have heterosex with a woman for the purpose of creating a child to fulfill that need. 
which he might be able to do, he might not be able to do. Yeah. Just from, like, a, a, a mental standpoint. It is something that he is locked out of. Right. And while it's not something that's, like, actively pushed by their society, it is still inherent to their society that only men and women sleeping together can create children. Yeah, and yeah, you're right, because, like, there is no adoption, there's no need, mm-hmm. so he can't have the same, you know, parental relationships. Parental relationships. Yeah. The only, only parental relationships he will ever have are going to be with friends, kids, which... Yeah, could people will say they're not the same or they're the same, but he won't be able. Obviously, he wants that, mm-hmm. but is not able to get it. All right. So, how are the gender roles of men and women different on Anaras from the gender roles of men and women on Uras? How do economics and language create or encourage those differences? Well, we definitely touched on this a bit already, yeah. but to reiterate, women are equal in every function of society on Anaras. They can work, they can study whatever they want, they don't have to stick around and raise children, they are not bound to the household, they are productive within society if they want to be, and they don't have to be if they don't want to. Right. They're not expected to marry, they're not expected to uh, even stick with one partner. Right. Uh, on Uros, it, it's 1900s. Yeah. It is the flip. They still can work and do work, but only if they're part of the underclass. Yeah. Though they probably are still expected to get married and probably still expected to have children at some point. Would have been interesting to see, like, more underclass lifestyle and structure to see how much of the upper class institutions were pushed on the lower class. Yeah, you kind of only get the sense of the differences, but... You don't get the how society works in the underclass. And I guess you just make the assumption it's kind of, like, contemporary. But it would have, yeah, it would have been nice. And I guess maybe she just wanted to, like, keep it a nice, tight novel. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to only be there for, like, a couple days and then, like, vacate, I guess. Mm-hmm. In terms of economics and language, uh, I'm trying to remember any phrases or things that kind of encourage the... There is definitely some talk of how women are referred to when it came to pay in his family, mm-hmm. but not a whole lot that I can like really pull on to bring up okay. right now. All right. And finally, how does the conversation between Shavek and Ambassador King break, break the fourth wall and include us readers in the novel? I believe it's she kind of said, hey, we can finally all talk together, because I guess these ambassadors are... Like they're aliens too. They're not. They're not part of the culture, and they probably thought it was just as weird having these possessive pronouns to communicate. And probably they are maybe just as Anara's, like where they have no possession or maybe close to. With the way that she described Terra, mm-hmm. basically, it feels like what we're hurtling towards to survive here. Um, because uh, she she talked about how. Terra, uh, I'll just refer to it as the Earth, got destroyed by their greed. Right. Climate change happened real hard, and the only way to survive for everyone who was left was essentially a, a totalitarian socialist state, much like it, how Thu is described. Right. To maximize the efficiency of their resources and to ensure the, the survival of the species in the face of what they had done to the world, because they, they destroyed the world. What's the question again? Uh, how does the conversation... Break the fourth wall. Yeah, break the fourth wall. 
trying to figure that out. I think, in a way, King is addressing us, right? Like, hey, by the way, your Earth is fucked, and we need to work together in order for us to even survive. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of... Uh, this is not surprising from a book from the 70s. Pretty much things were going towards, let's see, 70s was a lot of shortages of stuff, and things were... People had nukes that we did not want them to have nukes. So there's definitely a paranoia and kind of the world was going to end very soon. I think actually a lot of dystopian novels, like, obviously dystopian novels really ratcheted up because we it was close. It felt close. Oh, yeah. And with an anarchist like Ursula K. Le Guin, she's probably also tapped into the beginnings of the eco-movement. Right. This is a period where eco-terrorists are very active. Right. So she is aware, most likely, of their arguments regarding what we're doing to our planet, what it's going to lead to, and what we may need to do to end up surviving. Yeah. Did you find the passage or... Sort of, yeah. They basically talk about... uh, So my world, my Earth, is in ruin. Planet spoiled by the human species. We multiplied and gobbled and fought until there was nothing left, and then we died. We controlled neither appetite nor violence, and we did not adapt. We destroyed ourselves, but we destroyed the world first. There are no forests left on my Earth. The air is gray, the sky is gray, it is always hot. It is habitable, it is still habitable, but not as this world is. This is a living world, a harmony. Mine is a discord. You Odonians chose a desert. We Terrans made a desert. We survived there as you do. People are tough. There are nearly a half billion of us now. Once there were nine billion. You can still see the old cities everywhere. The bones and bricks go to dust, but the little pieces of plastic never do. They never adapt either. We failed as a species, as a social species. We are here now, dealing as equals with other human societies on other worlds, only because of the charity of the Hainish. They came. They brought us help. They built ships and gave them to us so we could leave our ruined world. They treat us gently, charitably, as a strong man treats the sick one. They are very strange people, the Hainish. Older than any of us. Infinitely generous. They are altruists. We had saved what could be saved and made a kind of life in the ruins on Terra, in the only way it could be done, by total centralization. Total control over the use of every acre of land, every scrap of metal, every ounce of fuel. Total rationing, birth control, euthanasia, universal conscription into the labor force. The absolute regimentation of each life towards the goal of racial survival. We had achieved that much when the Hainish came. They brought us a little more hope. Not very much. We have outlived it. We can only look at the splendid world, this vital society, this Uras, this paradise from the outside. We are capable only of admiring it, maybe envying it a little. Not very much. So yeah, basically, Uras is the world we have now, and Terra is the world we may soon have. Right. Pretty much saying, yo, your shit's fucked. Yeah. So... We're probably fucked. Yeah. Um, Unless some aliens come and help us and take us off the planet, we're pretty much fucked. Alright, so on that note, on a very, obviously, very positive note, has any of this discussion changed your mind about the book? Enhanced the book? Detracted? Enhanced? Definitely didn't make me dislike the book in any way. I really like the book to start out with. Resonates politically with me very strongly. Yeah. For me, it seems like this book is the kind of like speculative fiction, but still kind of hopeful, not very nihilist, kind of downward spiral. But it's 
I feel like it's a book that's kind of realistic of the downfalls of both societies. And even Yashavek came from commune, essentially. He's still... There are still these barriers that are still there, and we will always be, we need to be reflective and introspective to these types of situations. And I think that's pretty much what I got out of the book, was like, we, we need to be able to pursue, or are to pursue freedom, we need to always check ourselves, constantly. Something that does not appear in any of the books, not any of the books, any of the, the worlds, or discussions of worlds. Well, there is mass media on Uras right. in the form of the newspapers, but that's that was why it's it felt like turn of the century, like 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. There's only newspapers. Right. And I think there may be a little talk of radio. They definitely use ham radio to communicate. Yeah, but they uh, didn't use it worlds. as as a uh, way to uh, give, uh, give out information. Or create speculative fiction, or right. entertain. So, like, there is no society of the spectacle. Like, there's no constant distraction machines going on. Yeah. So, well, then again, the spectacle was when the war started. Mm-hmm. That was the spectacle. That that was the entertainment because every all of a sudden, everyone like is like, okay, this is all a bunch of lies and like whatever yellow new like journalism. To oh, well, actually, first it was him, Shabek arriving and that was the spectacle and then it became the war mm-hmm. and this revolution became the new entertainment mm-hmm. the thing i worry about and it, it may be true it may not be true but is that making the comparison between even Le Guin's world in 74 mm-hmm. let alone our world now to resist the structures as they exist right and to unbuild them to make space for new positive structures or potentially no structures in their place it requires a lot of direct focus and constant challenging of the existing structure in gentle or less gentle ways yeah and i don't know well like they don't they don't have television on these worlds they don't have movies on these worlds they don't have podcasts on these worlds so there's no outside of the occasional newspaper you might read once a day there's no escape from your conditions right there's there's the work that has to be done or the conversations or there's talk of plays and there's talk of music. Those those aren't constants. They aren't something you can tap into easily. Also, those plays and music seem to be very still structured in a very the societal way. It's not so like Tyrion pretty much got sent to the insane asylum because he had a different comedic play that no one understood and didn't like. Mm-hmm. So. Even when challenged outside of them, they just call him a criminal and send him away, and then that's it. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's what Shavek wanted to do, was to spread these different ideas through his current, like, his own uh, planet, mm-hmm. and then going to Uros to do the same thing. Right. So they they have the means to challenge the existing structures and potentially change them, because outside of what they're doing with their syndic and what they publish. Not to say that other people aren't doing it, other things. People are putting on plays, people are telling each other stories and hanging out, but, like, there's no constant information feed that you can tap into and ignore the workings of those around you. And we don't even see that 
necessarily on Earth either. Like outside of the the newspapers, there's no there are no movie theaters. There are right. no there's no television. As far as we know, the only books are academic. There, so, yeah, I'm sure there's like there's probably some literature, literature but it's not not like anything that's yeah. discussed. Making the comparison of what we can take away, at least as far as what we can do in the here and now, let alone what Le Guin could do or we could have done in 74, it's definitely limited by the availability of spectacle. Like, 74, you could watch, at that point, television all day. Yeah. Now you can watch all day and all night, and it's not just television. You also have YouTube. You also have uh, a million things under the sun. It's breaking, not not even breaking, unbuilding the structures is all that more difficult because of those who will be unaware that the structures have been unbuilt. Right. And without full awareness of, or even most of the awareness of uh, a society regarding a structure no longer no longer existing. Just by others asserting that it does exist, it does come back into existence. So while I really like the structure of their society and the, the idea of being able to unbuild structures in a society that are no longer working, I have I don't have a lot of hope for our ability to do that. Right. I mean, they had only had 170 years. Yeah. We have like 300-something. So... Yeah. <laughs> uh, just just in this country. So. Um, yeah. Yeah. And some of those structures stretch back even further, like the religious structures that they don't have to contend with. Right. Yeah. Well, in terms of things after this book, still kind of the same. Mm-hmm. Still kind of like, yeah, it's 70 sci-fi, speculative fiction. It's fun. Uh, it also kind of reaffirms some things about just building walls around yourself and being able to kind of not really think for yourself. That's kind of, I, I hate that. But thinking probably a little bit outside of yourself and outside of probably be empathetic to your neighbors or friends. So kind of that it, it reaffirms that, that people think differently than you, that's fine, but you also need to be kind of not nearly as selfish about things and for the, not, not really for the greater good, but like the greater good of like humankind. The it's very broad. Good. The grades are good. All right. So to finish up, what will be our next book for next time? Another doozy. Uh, well, I mean, not saying this was a doozy, but as far as topic goes, uh, we're going to be covering A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. I have an edition that was printed in like 2009, so it covers through the Iraq War. I don't know what edition you'll end up getting because he keeps updating it. Oh gosh, okay. Uh, But pair for disturbing and disappointing things. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the conclusion of Books Are Good, actually, even if they're a bummer. Uh, Mm We'll get our social media and all the other bullshit set up. Please, if you want to follow along, you can do so. Or if you like us talking about books in very not cool academic ways, keep on listening. Uh, We'll see you guys next time. See ya.